Hey, beloved people, welcome back. Today, we're talking with Colette Baron-Reed. She is a television star, radio star, podcast star, writer of brilliant books and an empath. And this conversation got deep. If there is any doubt in your mind that the goddess exists, well, it's flowing translucently through Colette. So let's strap our seatbelts on and get ready to rock. Welcome to Deep Transformation, self society spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Welcome, everyone. My name is John Dupuy, and uh, this is my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Roger Walsh. And we have with us today, Colette Baron-Reed. And I'm, I'm very excited about this. And uh, Colette is, she's a spiritual teacher. She teaches transformation, uh, life transformation. She is an intuitive, and she's created several uh, decks of oracle cards which are i've only seen one but my god the artwork spectacular and uh, uh, a star of television and radio and the internet and all of these reasons that i probably shouldn't like her and let me let me say that i uh i in my my past years and i think we we talked about my past on another thing but i i was in a spiritual cult when i was like 14 to about 22 so i really came out with charismatic really smart spiritual teachers didn't like them, you know, I mean, you know, my stuff totally, but um, we, I, we got involved with you through I awake and I'm not sure how, but it was kind of like, I don't know about this. And we were doing a project with you called uh, seven energies, which is basically the seven chakras. And you created these, these meditations and, and added uh, your musicians added music to it, which was absolutely gorgeous. I thought it was going to be, I'm so full of crap, but I thought it's going to be kind of new agey, you know, music and all. And it would turn out to be just extraordinarily beautiful. And then I awake, we added a, um, uh, a kind of a drone ish thing under that to entrain the brain to deep meditation states when you're listening to it to make it even more powerful. And when we were doing the first run of this, I started listening to meditation and um, they were extraordinary. Uh, you, you're one of those people that has, we, we, um, uh, uh, interviewed a Buddhist nun a while back, and she reads scripture of different traditions on the internet. And her name is Janeshwara. Was that right, Roger? Uh, Jayasara. Jayasara. And again, in you, I found a person that has this transmittory power through your voice and, and, and what you were saying. And I, uh, really, this, you know, here I go again, projecting all my stuff. And uh, then... Not too long ago, we did a um, we did a thing on the internet, uh, uh, a presentation together, and uh, Douglas Prater interviewed you, and I I wasn't really sure what I was doing there except to uh, just absorb and listen, and I think it's one of my gifts. Unlike my current performance, I am a deep listener. I have that capacity, and uh, at the end there was an open uh, just question, and you said, "Well, why don't you join me in answering these questions?" And we just started answering. It was like, and I know you're a musician also and a singer, but I felt like you were just laying down some kind of groove. 
And I was just moving into that and playing right with it. And it just, it just flowed out of me. And it was, it was, it was a really holy, beautiful experience. So um, here, what we try to do in this podcast is maybe get into some of the things that you don't normally talk about and try to get to the, you know, to the underneath levels and, and see where that goes. And um, one of the things I know about you also, which is near and dear to my heart is that you're in recovery. So uh, you have you know, years. Yeah. God bless you. Thank you. Anyway, congratulations. That's a big deal, folks. At a time. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that is near and dear to my heart as I worked in the field of, of recovery for many years and wrote a book about it. And just my whole my house was for eight years was a treatment center <laughs> in southern true. Utah. Addicts up and down the staircases everywhere. And it was a wonderful, wonderful learning experience. And they were all my teachers and they uh, opened my heart in huge ways. And so I'm, I'm interested in that story. And also the intuitive thing I find, um, I find remarkable. And I know, I know it is so I've experienced it. Uh, and I, and I haven't trained in it and everything, but I'm, I'm a six on the Enneagram. So, you know, sometimes we're always scanning the environment and we develop this, this sensitivity to things, but there was a story in my family, how my aunt Marie, uh, she was before I was born, but there were eight children in the family. And my oldest uncle, whom I never met, his name was Frank, he was killed in an automobile accident. This was probably, I don't know, uh, late 20s. And she was teaching school and she just stopped in the middle of that and said, Frank and Mort. You know, this was in Cajun, uh, French speaking uh, Louisiana. And, you know, she just started weeping. And, said, what? And, she, and sure enough, he just died. Hmm. And Sometime after that, when I was in my home in, in Utah, and we, we'd just been adopted by our, our, our dear friend, Lucy, a dog for 12 years, I think. And she was wandering around the free in the neighborhood. And I think we were watching TVOs with Pam and all, and all of a sudden I said, stop, something just happened to Lucy. I got to go. So I jumped in my car. It was after dark and I went down the block and sure enough in the lights, there she was and she'd just been hit. And, you know, was, her collar was knocked off and her face was all scraped and she was crying. And I, of course, I took her home. So all of that to say, uh, and of course, the, the work of Carl Jung in psychology and uh, being, being uh, I, I, I counseled people for years on the Internet and otherwise. And I noticed that sometimes I would get into that zone where I would say, you know, I have this image or you know, that came up to me and they go, well, that was my dream last night. And all these things would open up. So I, I, I think this is very real. And uh, Helen Palmer was my teacher. Uh, one of the people that brought the Enneagram uh, into common parlance who, who made it a public thing. And we were in the first generation of students that she taught about this. And she was also uh, uh, an intuitive and just Arian. So these are people I've known. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Terrific, terrific gifts. So all that to say, set you. I want to get into that too, and I want to learn. Is that something? How did that came out of your your suffering and your and your recovery? And how did you evolve and become uh, the person that I've been blessed uh, getting to know? So, uh, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Where do you want me to start? Do you want me to just? We'll start at the beginning. Okay. So 
I want to go back to a couple of things that you said. One of them was almost like saying, well, I'm not trained or something like that when you were referring to intuition. And first of all, intuition is everybody's. I really believe that there's that saying that we're spiritual beings having a human experience. I think Wayne Dyer coined it, but he wasn't the one that created the statement. But, you know, so if that is true, then the navigational tool of the spirit or the soul is intuition. So it's our first sense, because if we are first spiritual beings, second human, then intuition, which is our navigation system that enables us to know and see and feel and experience beyond five sensory awareness. So that's like reading between the lines, you know, the, the kind of cognitive knowing like you described about Frank Amor, or like, I know Lucy's been hit, like those kind of things. Like these are moments of cognition that we have because we share consciousness. Again, language can limit us because right away when we say the word soul, we think of religion or we think of new age, which is like, I laugh when I even talk about like, I don't know, is she going to be one of those fluffy bunny new agers? I'm like, no, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, go ahead, wait till you meet me. But the idea that we share this consciousness, this collective intelligence, but we can't navigate that through our personal limitations of our life experience, our conditioning, because we're really memory-based creatures, there's more to us. There's way more. And so intuition is that navigation, that ability to navigate those things. It's atrophied though. So ever since the age of reason became you know, where logic and they, they took away science and spirit and made it religion. Well, they have, it's always been like that. It's, it's always been like, how do we describe this? And then over here, we're going to have logic, reason, science, where there is no, there's no opportunity for any consciousness. Consciousness was not considered fundamental until recently, really. Now the whole, I don't know if you know about the, what is the, uh, oh crap. This is like the COVID has sucked my brain out. Okay. (laughs) But anyway, there are all these scientists and philosophers and thinkers and doctors now that are coming together to state that consciousness is fundamental. Princeton University is one of the ones that are studying this now that in fact, there's been a ghost in the machine for the longest time. Hello. So yeah, the the mystics that told us that from the very beginning, right? And we're just catching up with it. But I think it's because we had to take this big detour. So anyway, I just wanted to say that given that, you know, people say, oh, I'm not really intuitive. Well, yes, you are. Or I didn't study. Who cares? Right. It's not about a study. It's about, let's say, recovery programs help sublimate the ego. So the small I am is sublimated. And so that the great I am presence can be present, that spiritual present, that soul, soulful present, that essence of humanity, the great I am that works through us, our intuition is accessible, no problem. So it's really that kind of dance, spiritual narcolepsy one day and being awake the next. I awake. That's why you guys did that, right? We try, we try. <laughs> right? So when I first experience this capacity to tune into information beyond what I should know was when I was really young. I had a recurring nightmare from the age of three to around five. And I remember it. I can smell it. It was the one time that my mother didn't pick me up to hold me. I felt rejected. And like a little kid, you're three years old, you know, when the parent rejects you, it's a sense, right? It's because we're always tuning into the environment. Our intuition's on full blast. I had a nightmare of these very horrible smell and people being thrown into an easy bake oven because I had one that I guess how that's how I kind of 
translated this. And then these skeletal looking people and a man crying, sitting at a table, and then a a whole mound of teeth and gold and stuff. I didn't understand the gold, but I I knew teeth because I'd lost a couple of teeth and the tooth fairy came, blah, blah, blah. Right. So I told this to my mother. It was like this rejection of me, like push away. Right. Anyway, fast forward to 20, 22 years later, when my parents lost all their money, my dad was a very well-known land developer. He was a philosopher. He was an inventor. He was a really extraordinary individual, but he gambled at 75 years of age and all the money was gone. And my mom started to drink. Now at the time I wasn't sober yet either, but she, one day she sat and looked at me and I had, had, she'd given me a cross that she got in Berlin because she was from Berlin, but she was Polish. And she said, take that off. And I went, why? What do you mean? Take that off. She goes, you're a Jew. So all my life, like, so she said to me that dream you had was your grandfather. So my grandfather was a Sephardic Jew French and my mom, my mother's mother got pregnant. They, she was, my mother was born out of wedlock but her father was a Sephardic Jew and her, she came from a Jewish family, but it was so compl- conflicted. And she was then adopted into a Christian family. And so it turns out like I, I was raised Anglican right? and I apparently I'm not, wasn't Christian. So I was like, what? I saw her secrets. I was just a little kid and she built a life in Canada that was going to have nothing to do with any of that. It was enough that she had a German accent and nobody would buy her cake at the bake sale and whatever, because it wasn't Canadian enough. And both my parents had heavy accents. My father was Serbian. And so even though my dad spoke 14 languages, English was the one that he had the hardest time speaking, like his accent never went away. So it was very interesting. Anyway, so that just carried on throughout my childhood. And it would be sporadic, like, except that my nanny, Mrs. Kelly, she was this really interesting woman, old lady, when she came to look after us, and she was from Scotland, and she would croak like a frog, she had something wrong in her esophagus. So she would like, but anyway, when my parents went out, she would have her friends over and read cards, read their cards at the table. So she was a Scottish psychic from the Highlands. And my parents had no idea. So I'd be sitting there fascinated because I would see these lights and all this stuff around. I'm like, what is this? And anyway, one day I caught her telling my mother when she was in my mother and her were in the kitchen and we had one of those swinging doors into the dining room. And she's told my mother that I had the sight in this heavy Scottish brogue. And I know we're not supposed to just in case, because it's apparently not good to pretend it. Like, you know, I used to be really good at accents. You're not supposed to do that now. <laughs> but anyway. Well, really, well, I'd love to hear it, actually. I, I love accents. <laughs> no, anyway, I'm not going to do it. I got in trouble the other day for doing that. So anyhow, here's the deal. So she says that I had the sight. I'm sitting behind there thinking like, oh, I don't need glasses. Everybody wore glasses in my family. I thought this. How old were you when this was happening? I was seven. Wow. I was seven. So my mother gets upset. No, 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 no. And I'm like, what do you mean? I don't have to wear glasses. I had no clue that Mrs. Kelly was trying to tell my mother, like your daughter's psychic. Like she's got these gifts. You're going to have like, blah, blah, blah. My mother was like, no, no. So anyway, just to fast forward, because I really think that I had no boundaries and they were very sporadic. So I never knew what, why I knew what I knew. It was very confusing because I would just know something about somebody. I would just know that the baker wasn't going to be there because my mom said, go to the corner with your, and go and get the cake from the 
Austrian bakery. The Vienna bakery was called. And I went, no, he's not going to be there. We have, then I said, we have to go get more chocolate cake because he won't be there. And, and my mother, what are you talking about? But I knew that he was going to die, but I didn't know how to explain that. All I knew was the cake wouldn't be there. And then meanwhile, I had these very strict parents who already told me I was going to be a lawyer when I was like eight. You know, I went to a private girls school. They paid a lot of money for that. Very wasp. They wanted us to assimilate into very waspy upper middle, you know, like society so that we could. Fit. But were your parents Holocaust survivors or did they get out before? Mother was a Holocaust survivor. My father was not Jewish. My father was Serbian Orthodox, but his grandmother was Mongolian. So they were horse traders. That's probably where my cheeks come from. They were horse traders back in the mid 1800s. I think they traded her too. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's how we, yeah. My father used to tell us how we were just direct descendants of Genghis Khan. And I'm like, what does that even mean? So we have a very unique background and no surprise that I'm a little weird. But the addiction kicked in, I think very much because of this, because I didn't know where to fit where I fit. I felt everything. And, and I, I felt the world like it was, it was too much. Everything was too much. And so I started with an eating disorder. It ended up with alcohol. I was young and then pills and you name it. And I went to university to law school and had a drug overdose before the exams. I mean, the bottom line, yeah, it was like all kinds of just basically I couldn't be in my own skin. My whole life, I, I, I've never felt safe to be in my own skin. And I do think that Holocaust survivor, the ancestry of that. Absolutely. That's a big deal because my mom, ne I mean, there were no boundaries. My mother was a survivor. I mean, I'll just share this. And I, I know this could trigger some people, so I won't tell the details. But both of us, my mother at 19 years of age was violated by a group of Russian soldiers at 19 years of age. I had a violent experience with a bunch of guys. So it's like I mirrored the experiences that she had, but she didn't want anybody to know. So it was like, I wasn't allowed to talk about it. I wasn't allowed to talk about the family. I wasn't allowed to, because we were going to build this perfect life that's going to look good on the outside. But I really, I, I get her today. Like she's, she died when I was 33, but I totally- So you were her. holding not only your own trauma, but this inherited trauma from your parents and- Oh, ancestral trauma is real. Buck stops here sort of thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. And my dad, you know, my dad. Yes, exactly. So I think all the stories come go together, the heightened intuitive ability. And I used to hate the word psychic because it made me feel like I was going to be Madame Zora in the corner with the crystal balls. But meanwhile- I'm surrounded by them. <laughs> and I'm like thinking with the big earrings. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> but I was just like, I didn't want to be like the, you know, you know what I mean? Like Miss Cleo. I mean, I was intelligent and I knew that there could be something that we could do. So I, I dove into studying. That was one thing my father did do. I mean, he taught me how to read Turkish coffee cups. My, my, my inheritance from my father, my father was unbelievably psychic. Like he was an animist and taught me that everything had a spirit, a soul, a presiding spirit, and taught me how to see patterns in leftover coffee grounds when people would drink Turkish coffee. So I learned Tassiomancy when I was 15 and I was fascinated. And at that point I realized, wait, because Mrs. Kelly taught me that too, that yes, that everything has a spirit, everything has purpose, 
there's symbolism. That's why I got into young, everything had a symbol, the concept of active imagination, all of this came together for me very young. And then when I got my first deck of tarot cards, I was like, wait a second, (laughs) because everything is based in symbolism, symbology, metaphor. And that in, that is really how the universe speaks to us is through symbols. It doesn't speak English. It doesn't go, Hey, call that. Here you go. It says, otter in the way or, you know, bird formation. Like if I, I looked into all the really interesting ancient practices of divination of how nature was a tool to understand our experience in life. You take people into nature, right? That's your, that's your jam. Right? Well, it certainly was for many years. Yeah. Right. Right. So there's something to that. There's something that there is something living and alive that's impossible to really describe, but we can know it because we are it. And so it's the idea that we're not separate from that. So I'm just babbling away now. So what do you, when do you want me to stop and ask me a question? <laughs> oh, well, wow. That's awesome. Uh, there's so much there and, and I'm still haunted by the dream and I'll just leave that. But Roger, would you like to join us? What I'm struck by, Colette, as you talk is your description of the inherent and inherited sense of lack of safety. Both you lived through for so many years and your mother. And yet, as I read your book, the map, what struck me most and what surprised me most was the the feeling. I just realized a certain phase after I'd got into it a while. Oh, oh, she's creating a perspective in which everything, you just feel safe and okay. Right. And that was the thing. I mean, you know, there are lots of interesting ideas here, but it was a feeling tone that struck me most, an exact opposite of what you, you had to deal with. Well, here's the interesting piece. So I believe that, like, I'm not a love and light kind of person. You know, I'm not a bypasser. I've always believed the gift is in the shadow that the only way that I can evolve is to discover a path out of whatever it was that held me hostage. And so that meant to take my own accountability, understand where it may come from and ask out of curiosity, what else could there be? So you you mentioned the book, The Map. So remember, I'm in recovery a long time now, and I've done years of therapy. I studied Jungian psychology because I was fascinated with it. You know, I've done a lot of work and that book was really a gift to my readers of, hey, this is, I was this then, this is where I am now. And I wrote that book, I think in 2010. So it's quite some time ago, 11 years ago. And what I had done was I was really fascinated with the concept of the hero's journey and Joseph Campbell's work, but he talked about the hero of a thousand faces. But then I got into Bruce Lipton and Bruce and I became friends. And I was like, well, wait a second now, if the environment of the cell dictates the health of the cell, and it's not the the nucleus isn't the brain of the cell, that it's the environment, wouldn't one say that the environment of our thoughts, feelings, and beliefs was what we traveled through that, that story in motion. So instead of saying, the hero of a thousand faces where we experience all these different archetypes. And isn't it more difficult to move through the faces, but it's not that difficult to move through the places, the archetypal landscapes that we travel through. It's less personal. It's more transpersonal. So I, I kind of took that tactic and I used to drive him nuts by calling him all the time. Going, what do you think of this? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it seems that's one of your gifts in this book and your other work is to have created the symbolic system of a journey. 
and yeah. use that as a as a kind of framework for actually bringing a lot of things together. You have studied a lot of different things. You certainly know your Jungian psychology, and you certainly, as you said, don't hide from the shadow. In fact, you very beautifully exemplify and commend the shadow of the source of wisdom and healing. I, I think now more than ever, it's really important because I think this pandemic that we've all been through, the the really necessary, like anything that has an ism is something we have to look at right now, right? You know, we, we really are in a transformative moment that society is based on outdated and outmoded concepts and ideas. And in order for us to get there, we have to dismantle a lot of things. Now, I'm very much a meet you in the middle of the bridge kind of person, because I, I, I believe that one needs many perspectives in order to get a full picture of things, right? So I'm not a polarizing kind of person. I'm not interested in polarizing ideas. I want to, I want all the facets of the diamond, but we've, it's like, we've been pinned in place like a butterfly, right? Like here, you have to be right here to get this. That's a beautiful way of putting that, by the way, I I do feel a bit pinned sometimes. Right. Don't you? Mm -hmm. And so the concept of positive thinking I can think positively that I, at the other end of this, something really beautiful is going to come, but I can't love and light it away. Like I can't go, mm-hmm. oh, you know, just be loving and whatever. That's bullshit. Like I, I need to go look at my part in the problem. I need to go look at what do I need to change? Some of it is it be, you have to go through layers of shame and guilt and like bring those down and then go, okay. Cause it, you can't go from a, like so many people want to go, oh my God, this is it. And then go to hundred over there and just point fingers at everybody else which is like a way to avoid doing your own work, right? So it's like, no, this shit is painful and we need to go through it together. That is what suffering is, is to undergo a journey. That's what it means in its root of its, what's the cause? Not etymology. Is it etymology is a study of language, right? So we have to understand and acknowledge the suffering, the difficulties, the inequities. There are so many things that are, but again, we also have to experience the feelings but not dwell in them. Like that's the other piece what I'm realizing. There is an, a, there's a, a way to dance this that none of us really know the steps yet. So we're stumbling <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, it, it's something about being very present, but being free at the same time. In other words, having the observers, exactly. but being totally in it as it processes. Both and. So yeah. it's understanding the resilience and the skill that I think everybody needs to learn right now. And I, again, I'm, I don't really speak for everybody. I know me, I speak for myself. I share it with people if they like it interesting, if not, you know, whatever. But the bottom line is, is that there is, we must have both and. We have to have the illumination of the light. We definitely want joy. We want prosperity. We want abundance. We want love, compassion, freedom, blah, blah, blah. But we also have the suffering, the anger, the rage, the pain, the trauma, both and, and they can coexist. We've always been thinking one or the other, right? But you can have both. And I think that that's a way to expand our experience because isn't it true that the soul just wants to experience life? And the only way to get to this, and again, I don't believe in ascension. I don't believe that we're going above anything. I believe this is this is an evolving, you know, more of an expanded, multidimensional experience. And our invitation right now is to be present to all of it and not judge any of it. Yeah, what do you think? And I'll maybe throw this out to you, Roger. I've got these two people online here that I just really admire <laughs> in your knowledge and your wisdom. But we're going through this period of the pandemic, uh, part deux, 
it's back. People are getting really sick here in Louisiana. And my friends in Austria and Germany, they closed it all down again. It's just come back. And I was reading the other day that the incidence of suicide, a drug overdoses, has gone through the roof. The worst it's been maybe ever. And I think this is tied into this pandemic and just being cut off and being whatever this thing has isolated us into our own thing, except through except possibly through the internet, which as we've seen can be either good or bad. It can be a blessing or a curse, depending on how you use it. So I guess what I'm looking for, what wisdom, what could we do to make this time a time of growth, a time of awakening, a time of healing, and not a time of anger? I know a lot of people are really pissed at people who didn't get vaccinated. You know, that's why it's all back. It's like, yeah, you can get mad, but at a certain point, what are you going to do? Can you sit around being mad at people anymore? No, there are brothers and sisters and we just have to be with folks. So I'm just kind of throwing that out there to see if what emerges, because it's certainly been on my mind and my heart. That's for you, Roger. <laughs> well, I, I'd love to hear what, how you would respond to that, Colette. I mean, oh, I'm, yes. I'm, happy to, <laughs> I'm happy to jump in. In fact, there's so much in what you've said already. I've been taking some notes and I'd love to come back to some of it, but I would love to hear your response to that. Sure. Okay. So I totally agree. But we have to experience the anger in order to move through it, right? So what do we do with it and how do we make it work for us, right? And not be devastated by how long it's taking for things to change because some people will be tremendously devastated, live lost hope, et cetera. So there's all like, what do we do with the gamut of these things? And I think it is about radical acceptance to, and also to, you know, that smaller, I can only change myself. I have no influence on anyone else. I hope the term influencer fascinates me because like, really? <laughs> but yeah. like, I can only influence me. I know I have to meditate more. I have to cry a lot. I need to cry more. I'm not a crier. I am not a crier. I've actually done MD EMDR work around the collective trauma because I tune into it and it's debilitating. Yeah. I am doing the things I got to do in order to stay so that I'm in service. And to myself too, and to my family, and not to add to the problems. <laughs> so how do I contribute is the first question that I have. Like, how do I contribute more kindness? I think at the end of the day, how can I be kind? I have friends who are, who will never get vaccinated. I'm not going to tell, I, I'm not cutting them off. You know, I was allergic to the first vaccine. I went into, I had an anaphylactic response and ended up in emergency. I never didn't, I didn't tell anybody that because I didn't want to, when the vaccine was still new, I didn't want to scare anybody, but I was in emergency. And then wow. I had to, to get my second one. I had to go through a whole antihistamine protocol. So I get it. There's some people who can't get vaccinated some people who can. I am not the, you better Listen, do I believe personally that we have to do whatever we can to protect each other? That we have a, we have a, yes, but I can't waste my energy on being mad. You know, I just got to do what I got to do. I wear my mask. I do my thing. And if people don't like it, whatever, but it's really pick your battles. Yes, indeed. Pick your battles. Like how important is this for, to be right? How is this important to and, and think for yourself is the other one, right? Like I, I gotta be honest, I stay off the internet and I, I don't scroll on social media. I go on there for my business. I talk to my fans, you know, my team will say, Hey, you know, it's time to go in and I'll say blah, blah, blah. But I don't scroll. I don't call my friends that way. I don't look and see what people are talking about anymore because half the time it just felt like it was one big conditioned BS. 
some of it's good. I don't have time to sort through it all. Right. And I have to say, I, I started painting instead and I just felt so much better. Like what is important? Do I fill my mind with what is important? Right? There's only so much space and I don't want to be swept up in mob psychology because it's contagious. It is. And the media, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, it's like, that's what we get. That's what we get shown. So for me, it's like, who can I impact? And I think if everybody thinks more like that, who can I impact in a positive way? How do I, to the best of my ability, I mean, there are people who work three jobs right now and they, and they, they don't have five minutes to meditate, but can they take the 24 hour day plan? Like anybody can live in 24 hours. Like, so it's just different ways of viewing the world. But for me, it boils down to compassion and kindness, yeah. compassion and kindness and live and let live in a way and do by part. And also wait, one more last thing is uh, micro changes. I was super depressed at the very beginning, like a few years ago, because of, of the kind of work that I do, I have 14 Oracle card decks. I had to really look into cultural appropriation and how I might've missed the mark on some of the things. I had to go back to my publisher, ask if I could switch some th cards in my deck. They were amazing. I was one of the first people to ask that, but I had to really dive in. I had two coaches. I like, I did not, I really needed to do my own work. So I was super, super, super aware. And I so depressed because I thought I had to fix it all overnight. You know what I mean? And then realize now, like I have to make micro changes. And I also, I had this great coach. Her name was Ruth King. She wrote a book called Mindful of Race. One of the most amazing humans on the planet. I love her. And we become friends after that. Anyway, so she said to me, you are going to make a lot of mistakes. I did not want to hear that. She goes, you have to expect that. You're not going to get this right. You're not going to get it right. You're not going to get it. You know, you are, you're going to stumble and then you're going to get up and you're going to make these incremental changes. And that changed me right there. Like, right. Micro steps every day. If I can make a micro change every single day, that adds up and to leave room for growth. Just because somebody didn't get it right once doesn't mean they can't get it right now. You always have to leave room for that kind of reconciliation in some way and to change. So that's the other piece. Anyway, I could go on forever. You asked me. To yeah, I heard a wise man say the other day is try, fail, fail better. You yeah, know? and then try again, but be committed and get yourself out of the way. That was the other thing, because I did go through a big period where I felt a lot of shame. I felt a lot of confusion and whatever. Once you're out of that, once you're like, oh, wait, I just have to commit to this. I just need to make a commitment. This is nothing to do with my shame. This is like, that's my, that's my shit to deal with. Right. It's like, it's now it's like, what do I do today? What, what's one thing I could do today? Just one thing, make it manageable. I'm finished now. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> good. Thank you. That's great. I suspect you're just getting started, but there's <laughs> 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 uh, so much in what you said course acknowledging we start with ourselves but i think it was some some wise person said you start with yourself but don't end with yourself and i think you just summarized that beautifully of, of you know taking responsibility and then being as you know influencing and contributing in whatever ways we can so yeah very beautiful and i love that you have been ta frantically taking notes you're going to make a lot of mistakes <laughs> that's that's a wonderful <laughs> gift just there right yeah, it certainly fits my experience. <laughs> and you know, you're a scientist and a doctor, right? So you right. you know that every single invention or discovery 
comes from curiosity, mm. right? If you keep doing the same thing, if you do what you did, you're going to get what you got. But any new thing comes from doing something a little different, experimenting and trying this. And I think that's the other thing is that make curiosity your superpower. Yeah. yeah. And you implied this, but I want to make sure it's, it's emphasized. You know, life can be an exper ongoing experiment. <laughs> it is. And should be, yes. Because as John said, we're going to try, fail, and, and hopefully fail better. But but to hold it as an experiment it just feels so open and hopeful. You said that right word is hopeful. I think because I got a second chance at life, because like, I really should have died in my 20s. You know, I got clean and sober on my Saturn return in astrology, which is kind of like that 27 club, you know, all those people that died, Mama Cass, Jimi Hendrix, the guy from the doors, everybody, you know, Kurt Cobain, when you look at all these, they all died around the same age, which is their Saturn return, I could have died, because I got clean and sober when I was 27, 28. And I hit bottom. And I look back at the places and the danger I put myself in and all the things. But I, so when I look back, I realize that I have had a second chance at life and I'm not always going to get it right, but that's okay because this is my gift back and I owe it to whatever divine, you know, source that decided not to let, I mean, I could, I should be dead. I should be dead and I'm not. And so I feel hope every day even in the most hopeless things like the losses, et cetera. And even during the bouts of, oh my God, I didn't get it right again. You know, like, <laughs> you know, all those, like, yeah, the perfectionism, whatever, but there's still hope because I feel hope for humanity. I really believe that in us, there's intrinsic good in all of us, in nature, in everything. I just believe that we have an opportunity to do something better. I do. And I feel super hopeful of the next generation, the next two generations. Whew, May it be so. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you're talking about hope now, Colette, and I want to come back to you focused a lot on different emotions and the ways to relate to them. And, and this feels so important because, you know, emotions are, of course, the positive ones are the juice of our life and the difficult ones are the ones we, that either take us under or as you, you implied, we learn from. And so much seems to depend on the the way in which we relate to them. And that's a central feature of your work, it seems, mm -hmm. emphasizing that the painful emotions, the challenges are potential gift. Yeah. And I love the balance you pointed to before that, that we can hold both the positive and the negative, or and negative isn't even the right word. Not even word, the right word, know. yeah. Yeah, but positive and the painful emotions at the simultaneously. So much depends on how we relate to them. It seems like it's a delicate balance of having simultaneously a willingness to open to painful emotions and not to use them for our own ego aggrandizement or... Yeah, or a weapon. A weapon. Well, interesting. I hadn't thought Weaponizing about Weaponizing it. Yeah, we weaponize our emotions. We, we can weaponize our perspective, our conditioning. Women have struggled with internalized patriarchy. You know, you'll see women behave towards each other in horrific ways. Like, you know, the way they the power dynamics, which is we really want to be collaborative and connected, et cetera. But there's still that kind of, certainly my generation, because I'm 63. So women my age and a little older are different because of the way we were raised by our mothers who were born in the late twenties and early thirties, right? So there's in order to feel like we belong or that there's enough, there's ways in which we've learned how to behave that don't help everybody, right? And we can also weaponize the feelings that we haven't processed, 
by projecting them onto other people. Like I haven't done this work, but boy, oh boy, I'm going to make sure you know you haven't. We see a lot of that with the calling out culture on the internet, right? A lot of, some of it's important, I think, the cancel culture. Some of it's like, yes, the people need to be, you know, they need to acknowledge when they've done something, but some of it's just like the mob with like these, you know, the, the pitchforks. There's not a whole lot of work sometimes. And it's like, like, oh, I know this is terrible. You are doing it, right? As opposed to like, maybe I should check myself. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think right now we're in this really painful time. I think we're all in a lot of pain right now. We have to be careful not to weaponize it to make it more of a polarizing thing so that we use it to hurt each other. So we don't project it on others, our pain and our suffering, yeah. Yeah, I I probably could have said that in a shorter sentence. (laughs) (laughs) I said that work it all out while I'm talking. (laughs) Yeah, well, great. Well, thank you for (laughs) including us in the working out. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, though. I think, I see if you guys believe this too, but, you know... I feel that the hope is in the, like humans are response able. We are able to respond. Like responsibility doesn't mean it's all on your shoulders. It means you're able to respond to this. We have the capacity Mm -hmm. to do what needs to be done. We really do. I think it's just a matter of getting over ourselves, getting ourselves out of the way, know that we got to work on this, but then allowing our attachments, like letting go our attachments and then being curious to see, well, what else could there, how else could this be? How else could I make this mean? What else could I do differently? Which mm-hmm. is experimental, like, because we, none of us know, I don't think, 100%. No, no, that's for sure. I mean, at the bottom, it's mystery. And yet we have, we have to choose, we have to operate, we have to live. Well, I'll say that we also need to trust the universe. That's the other thing. Like, I believe we're in a co-creative partnership with a conscious universe that isn't determined that's the other thing. We did decide who we are based on our outer conditions. But what if our outer conditions, that wasn't what needed to dictate how we are? Like we need to learn to be the eye in the storm and trust that there's a partnership. We're not all by ourselves. Yeah. It's like I've learned that in recovery. I know, and I don't know exactly what it is, but boy, oh boy, there's something working with me in partnership with me. How did you get to that point in your life? I'm sure it wasn't always like that. When was that kind of breakthrough that you said, hey, I'm not alone. There's something else going on here. Well, I went to AA. So for me, it was in the beginning of my recovery where I just knew, oh my God, I'm saved. (laughs) Like, you know, and it's not for everybody, but I'm I'm not breaking an anonymity today, but I don't been 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 here a long time. But like when I have to say that that's I felt the spirit come to me when I was, when I saw a tree was my first week in in a recovery center for women. And my boot got stuck in the snow. And all of a sudden I looked at a tree and I realized, wait a second, like the world is not suction cupped onto the end of my nose, that there is, there is something who made the tree. I asked myself, who made this tree? And then like, well, maybe that same thing made me. So maybe I'm not junk. Maybe I'm not a mistake. That, that's literally my spiritual awakening. That's beautiful. I wasn't a mistake because I saw a tree. As crazy as that sounds, but. No, it doesn't sound crazy. My wife fell into a flower, you know. She fell into a flower <laughs> in her mind and just boom, everything changed after that. Right. Yeah, there's so much we don't know. So much we don't know about the world and so much we need to discover. And we have to be very careful that we're not hypnotized into the din of argument, like, because it's just ongoing, we have to, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Because then we get, we're like in this oh, yeah. dryer, like we're just going boom, 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 boom. And what's outside the dryer? You got to spend some time outside that dryer, right? you know, the cycle that goes around and around. And once you do that, it's like, oh, wait a sec, I can think for myself again. 
That's it. I think that's an important piece. I'm trying to drop you little hints, <laughs> Roger. <laughs> well, you're dropping so many hints that I'm I'm just taking so many notes. There's so many things I'd like to jump in on. <laughs> but there's just one. I I hadn't heard this before. The statement, I am not a mistake. That's so simple, so obvious, and so important and profound. I mean, that's a very healing perspective for so many of us. You know, when you think of how we're born into the world. Some of us are born with privilege that we took for granted. Some of us are born without it, but we're still born and we have a story. No matter what has happened to us, what we do, what we don't do, what the legacy is of our ancestry, anything like that. I know if, if you've suffered from a sense of unworthiness, you think deep down, you are the mistake or you are the shame. You are the fear and it becomes identified with you. And so I believed that I was, you know, all the violence, et cetera, et cetera, that that's because I was a mistake. I really believed deep down I was a mistake. And I realized, oh, that is huge. Just from that one little place that no one is a mistake, that no one is broken either. Nobody is broken. We are in process of learning new stories and telling new stories about ourselves and each other and others our ancestry. I completely rewrote my past. As I changed myself, I saw the stories I told about my past in a very different way. So my whole life has changed because I am different today. And that's why I feel hopeful. Yeah, it's the saying goes, never too late to have a positive childhood. And that, and that <laughs> can cover over a lot, but there's something valuable in that perspective. And your point about that for so many of us, there's the assumption we are a mistake. There's something fundamentally wrong with us. Uh, as far as I can see, that's actually not just a circumstantial conclusion. It's actually existential. It's baked into the ego as a separate self-sense, which in the separate self-sense or this egoic thought structure recognizes its illusoriness at some level and recognizes there's something wrong, it seems. And it seems so common, so universal that I've come to call it the fundamental flaw fallacy. We just assume there's some fundamental flaw in us. And so much of our life can be spent trying to hide or compensate or correct that. And you're pointing to the illumination, which sees that, oh, that is a belief and that's a mental construct or self-creation that is not actually what I am. No, I am not that. It's funny, as soon as people come in, I have a school called the Oracle School, and it's a personal transformation experience using Oracle cards as a navigational tool. So that's how we work it. The first thing we teach them is you are not broken. Like, don't come in here thinking you're going to fix yourself because that's not what we're doing. It's learning to experience yourself in your totality and love all of it, shadow, light, stories. So then when you're not fighting against something, and you're not resisting this, then it's like, oh, well, what else could I make this mean? What else could it be? And it takes a bit for people to realize, oh, what do you mean I'm not broken? You know, the idea that there's this nameless shame that's there. Now, that said, I do want to say this. There's a new, it's not new because it's just become part of our zeitgeist. So the idea that Thomas Hubel and Gabor Mate and teachers like that, that are talking about the collective trauma, very, very important work. As far as I'm concerned, it's so crucial that this is something we look at, right? Because we forget 
that we are individuals, but we're also conditioned in a big way by our ancestry, by society, by the conditioning that we take on based on our life experiences, personal trauma, yes, but also the whole collective, like there's racism is collective trauma, right? You know, it's like all the different pieces that we all fit in this puzzle. That's a big one. Same, so many things that we also have to acknowledge, then we can give it credibility too. like say, this isn't in our head. This isn't something to hide. This is something we can speak on now. Wow. You know, we're all hurting. What do we do? What do we do now to make a change so that even incremental changes so that we're liberated from that pain and that fundamental flaw fallacy. And remember too, everything, our negative bias is the thing that calls us to the forefront right away. First, it's harder to practice hope than it is to practice fear. I could practice fear, no problem. Oh, <laughs> I can search for reasons to feel that I'm going to be threatened at any minute, as opposed to like hope those are harder emotions because we don't naturally want to go there. We want to protect ourselves. And I think that that's the big issue that we've collectively been through in the past almost two years now. And we're going right back in it again. The idea that we should be afraid of this, you know, this existential fear too, that we're going to be wiped out, but also everything that goes along with that and that we're just looking for potential threats. And then we cut ourselves off from curiosity when that's all we're looking for. So it takes real discipline to be hopeful. I think so. it's not the mm. Pollyanna hope. I'm talking about hopeful because you know that you plus the universe and you not being alone, that together we can make a difference. Yeah, you got to go deep. I used to tell my students, don't have to get scared of going too deep inside because eventually it's going to break through to the light. But the way to get there is through that darkness and pain. That's where we find it. I, I got a lot of questions you, you bring up all kinds of things, but Roger, did you have anything you wanted to? Well, I have a lot, but now I'm wanting to hear your question. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of 12 steps and I think it would be something extraordinary for everybody to do it. Not just our so-called addicts. It, it's basically humanity, spirituality, 101. Yep. And if you're you know, going to be a teacher or be called in some kind of, if you're going to be a parent, I mean, if you're going <laughs> to be a human being, you better do this stuff. You know, it's really, really essential. Yep. The squeaky wheels get the grease, I guess. I'm like really tired of the anonymity thing. And though I know it's appropriate, I understand why, but come on people. It's only if it was shameful, you know, and, and the only thing is shameful is not taking responsibility for it. But if you've got this thing, you've got this thing and it can be the best thing that ever happened to you. If, if, you, if you roll with it and you work and, and you do what you need to do. And it's all of us. It's all of us. I mean, 10% of us, but who of us is not either. It's not been me. It's been my family, my friends, my workplace, my generations. I mean, it's just there. I think it needs to be, you know, it needs to be okay. Mm -hmm. And to admit it is one of the bravest and most honorable things you can do. And it's the beginning of wisdom. So here, here. Yeah. But I was going to ask you how you went from the woman that has this incredible dramatic and traumatic inheritance and, and experience and you get into you get into recovery and you boom you have this moment with the tree and I, I was a therapeutic wilderness guide for many years and I still haven't figured out why this stuff speaks to us the way it does I don't know what happens to me when I'm in the wilderness but I know and there's a whole school of, of eco psychology yeah eco psychology and I it still doesn't tell me why what this mystery is but I know it's God it keeps transforming the same as it ever was. But how did you go from that place into finding your path as a teacher and as a healer? And I would like to say, I think that is a part of recovery too. When you find your path 
then everything begins to kind of fall in line in a meaning pattern. And you go, okay, the suffering, everything, this was all, there's a purpose. And now I can give back. And it's. So I will speak about the 12 steps because built into it is sponsorship. That's what I learned. So it was the first time in my life I felt that I had value and I didn't need to be financially successful. I didn't need to have any kind of social hierarchical, you know, wherever I, I, I didn't have to belong anywhere on a higher echelon of anything. Just by sharing my experience, strength and hope with another recovering alcoholic, I could have value. And so the 12 steps, attending the 12 steps, working those program, it's a metaphysical program. It changes you. It gave me a confidence and I realized that I real I wanted to share this. I actually wanted to be a counselor, but I had a career choice at the time that I was pursuing doggedly, which was as an artist, as a singer-songwriter. So I I did eventually get a record deal with EMI Music. I have two albums out. It was interesting because I was glad that I didn't pursue egoically pursue work as a healer or whatever. I was like, "Uh, I'm just good at this. I don't really care. Don't come back next year. I'm really a singer." <laughs> That's what I said to tell people. I don't really do this. I'm really a singer. So my was like my ego was so attached to how I thought I would feel if I got successful as a as an artist that I didn't notice <laughs> that what was happening in my natural abilities, which started out as an aromatherapist, and then I started using the tarot, and then the next thing you know, I was doing readings, and the next thing you know, I was giving workshops, and the next. So I've been doing this work for thirty. 30 through almost 33 years while pursuing this other career. So I think when looking back on it, it was like, it chose me. I didn't chose it at all. I kept trying to quit. I had a huge chip on my shoulder. I don't want to be psychic. Ew. Right. And I'm not, I'm not a medium. I just know a lot. I just can tune in. I'm like, I don't talk to dead people until I eventually realized, oh, I really do talk to dead people. Okay, fine. Uh, I don't really know what goes on over there, but for some reason I can do this. And then it was just sort of a, a really organic until one day I realized, oh, wow, I'm failing miserably at music. This thing here wants me and I'm feeling good. And all the feelings that I thought the music was going to give me that I could translate my pain and suffering or whatever into something useful for others. Like you want, that's what music did for me, listening to songs when I was growing up, Joni Mitchell and all that. Right. I mean, I'm that age. Right. So then it was like, okay. So it just sort of happened. I got the book deal with Hay House. I went on to 110 city tour speaking tour. I didn't know what I was doing. And when I look back, I'm like, I was picked. I, I there's no freaking way I would have ever chosen this. Like, you know, I'm not, I don't, it's funny. I wanted to do the singing thing, but I never, I, I am, I might be really loud and boisterous now, but I'm a hermit. I don't like being public. I don't, I'm not, I don't care about any of that. I don't like, eh. So it's kind of like the weird, I love to be in front of people, but at the same time, I, I want to be very private. I don't know how that works, but, and then also, I, call, I've often said I'm an introvert cursed with extrovert gifts. Me too. <laughs> That's me. Right. It's weird. But I realized more and more that the magic, I just kept seeing the most outrageous things. I was like, I got to keep following this. And all I've ever done was follow the crumbs. Like I'm painting now and <laughs> I took a class. I had no idea I could paint. And next thing you know, I'm painting these giant paintings. And next thing you know, my publisher says, oh, these are really good. We're going to get you to do your own paintings for your Oracle card decks. Right. So I'm like, what? And all I just do is what's in front of me. I never have an agenda. So I think that's part of the evolution of my world is that 
I keep sharing what I've been through, but one thing I don't do, I don't work it out in front of people I, anymore. Like, I, like I need to know I've done it. I've proved it. I've been able to see it. I've like, okay, before I'll teach it. Like, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I need to know integrity, the in, integrous, this is what I do know for sure. And then I'll share that. I find working it out in front of people doesn't work. Of course, because it was interesting because I, when I was newly sober, I had a therapist who used the Handel Tarot as part of my therapy sessions. So I knew early, early on that I could equate oracles or divination with a therapeutic end. It was reflective and not predictive. So I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I was like, ah, I could, I could do this. But even though I made a living for many years doing the other thing, but that's what my whole focus is right now. I create all these Oracle decks. It's like, I, I channel them. I feel it's a gift. I'm so grateful, but their use is not just to track energy is what's happening. Where's it going? Am I going to get what I want? It's more like, oh, how can I reflect on what spirit wants me to know right now? Where am I in this journey? What do I need to learn? What do, I, what, what do I need to avoid? How can I be, how can I use my life force for the highest good of all, not just for me? Yeah. So, you know what I mean? So that's basically it in a nutshell, the end. That's a <laughs> <laughs> all the beginning. That's a beautiful perspective for anything. How can I use this to, to learn and grow and contribute and not just for myself? There's so much in that. So much in that. Beautiful. Except. I drove myself crazy going, oh, P.S. Like, it'd be like, okay, thy will be done through me. P.S., the record deal, the band. Like, I'd be like, yeah. the, you know, I surrender to you. I surrender, but Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes band? Right. <laughs> <laughs> really. That was painful. Ah. <laughs> yes, here's what you would should do for me if you really understood, right? Uh, both of you have spoken so positively about 12-step and I just want to uh, give you an opportunity to say more because as I, as someone who's, who has not been through it, but as a, as a psychiatrist have great respect for it. And particularly given how difficult it can be to work with addiction. And here we have this worldwide organization which has helped millions of people. And as I look at it, I mean, any one of those steps was probably more than most of us do in a lifetime. Take a fearful, fearless moral inventory, make make amends for, for wherever possible for our mistakes and the people we've hurt. It's like that would change the world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, I will say that there, every single thing that I have in my life today is as a result of working those 12 steps. And I mean that unequivocally. Mm. But the 12 steps for me gave me a basis. Like, for example, the making amends thing, I had a tremendous, because I was raised in the environment I was raised in, and I had experiences in my life where in order to protect myself, I capitulated to someone else's violence. That was me. That step, uh, you know, making amends, right, with, with other people, except when to do so would injure them or others. I had to understand that all hurt is not always hurt. Some people can project on you, like people with mental health issues can project on you. You did this to me when you didn't. And in the past, I'd be like, oh, I am so sorry. Will you be nice now? Will you be good now? Will you be, you know, like it was a, a, a people pleasing. The codependency piece was huge. And so my real healing came when I stopped 
doing that. When I really ask myself, is this mine to own? Like I just owned it all. I am a big mistake, right? That was the other thing. Like, oh my God, you're mad at me. And so it's like, I had, I had somebody come after me about something and it was like, this isn't mine, you know? And, and yet I wanted to hug them and say, look, I know you're in pain. And I know this thing that you think happened that's hurt you, that you feel hurt by, but that's a projection. That's not what really happened, but you can't, right? And no hugging, you know what I mean? If somebody comes out to try to actually hurt you, the old me would have gone running, like, how can I fix it so that you don't hurt me? And now it's like, this isn't mine. So it's, and that's because the next layer of the 12 steps is what is yours to own? So there's that Al-Anon piece, which is, again, I don't want to talk about Al-Anon specifically, but it's- No, that's really good though, yeah. Yeah, it's the coding. There are so many layers to recovery. I only really got grounded when I looked at that part. And you're speaking of essentially of taking responsibility, and you spoke of that earlier. And that's so important when you know, in therapy, we say that, you know, people heal and transform to the extent to which they're willing to take responsibility for themselves. Right. But, but responsibility is such a loaded word in our culture, because it's right. usually associated with condemnation, shame and blame. But as with so many ideas, there are levels of understanding to it. And it's, it just seems crucial to me if there was one, you know, if I mean, each of us, I think, doing this kind of work has a sense of, wow, if there were just a couple ideas I could get out into the culture, this would be one of them. And I think for me, one of them would be that responsibility is, as you said, the capacity for choosing responses. And the way I would define responsibility is we are responsible to the extent we recognize or and acknowledge that we play a role in creating our experience. Right. Oh, I love that you said that because the role in our experience may also be our emotional content as to how we experience the experience. Like mm. if something worked, if manipulating others, if people pleasing, if capitulating kept you safe at one time, then that's what you know, it worked for you. So it's like being realizing that that may not work for me now, but it did work for me then. Is there a better menu? Like not all of us have a menu of options. That's the other thing. It's like, cause the trauma has created limited options for some people. I can only react this way or respond this way. At the level of us willing to be vulnerable enough to look at the next layer, but you gotta start somewhere. You yeah. gotta start somewhere. Yeah, and you're giving voice to the general principle that so many of today's problems are yesterday's solutions. Yeah. And they may have worked fine at a particular particular state, or they may have been the only only responses we had the capacity for at the time. Yeah. But we carry those like habits, of course, which they are, into the present instead of, as you were saying earlier, to as much as we can, and here's where we can help each other, to treat each experience, each moment, each you know, day as an experiment, ongoing experiment. And I love the the fact that you pointed to the possibility of of life as experiment. Yeah. Wow. This is such a good conversation. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be doing this today. <laughs> this is so good. Well, I had a feel for you from the book, but now I'm getting a traditional feel of the nuance of your thinking and the way in which you are constantly playing with different perspectives, which is just a delight. Can I just say this is something that I have found. I read an article about somebody said the infantilization 
of the modern mind, you know, about how people have the attention span of a gnat, you know, and everything is so polarized, black or white. And, and again, using those colors vary, just literally the color, right? So the uh, polarizing, all the polarizing, there's not enough room for nuance and nuance and innovation, right? That at least that we hear of. And I, these kind of conversations, these nuanced conversations are so important to be able to have respectful listening to like, oh, can I change my perspective if I hear you, you know, if I, if I hear where you're coming from and I'm always willing and, but we need to have the conversations in order for us to, right. You know what I mean? To be able to have those nuances. And yeah, and it's so important. I want to go back. You've, you've emphasized the, the dangers of condemnation a couple of times and very appropriately. And yet condemnation is one of the terms where we need to have some nuance because it's used in two ways. One is judgment. I'm sorry, you've used the word judgment, but it, it, it has two meanings. One is to condemn, which leads to righteousness, anger and attack. But the other is what you're pointing to now, discernment, which is right. the, the root of wisdom. Yeah. And discernment allows for nuance. And I've come to think that one of the characteristics of discernment is that Discernment is the capacity for sensitive, nuanced perception and seeing. Yes, I, I love that 100%. And I think that what you're describing now is, again, if the 12 steps gave me the nuance, right? Mm. They, it gave me a ground for of exploration. And I made, I reinvented myself so many times because I had a foundation that, that enabled me to discern. So the idea of judgment, you're right. I meant condemnation, that judgment is misused. Like it's not the diff challenging emotions that we'd like to get rid of because we can't, it's the, it's the distortion of them where judgment becomes condemnation, where there is no room for healing or growth or change or whatever, like those kind of things I would like to see off the table now <laughs> as we move into the next year, <laughs> yeah. you know, because it's not helpful. And I'd love to invite you both to to stay with the 12 steps a little longer. You've both said how important and life-changing it's been for you. And it's it's such an important movement and there's so much in it, and so much more than most of us most of us think. So I'd love to hear you say more. Hey, do you have a favorite step? I've never asked anybody that before, actually. Me personally? Mm-hmm. Yes. Step three. Can you quote it? Perhaps? Made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand God. So that was the surrender to, because I'm feisty. I'm a, I have attachments. <laughs> I want to do it my way, my will. I, me, me, I, I. And that was when I realized, because I had a higher power. I realized that in step two, but it was like, now I got to surrender to the partnership. That to me is a pivotal one. And my other favorite one is step 11. Mine. Let me quote it. Whoa. Okay, you. I love this. It's just, it's a mantra. Sought through prayer and meditation to increase our conscious contact with God, seeking only his slash her will and the power to carry it out. Or there. Yeah, or there. Okay. <laughs> Let's yeah, be but... open now to an ungendered concept of the spirit. Well, God's got to be both. I mean, if God's yeah. not bisexual, we're all lost, right? Yeah, so... I <laughs> God is queer, right? <laughs> I could go with that. Like, <laughs> uh, 
Colette, say a little more about surrender, because in our conventional conventional cultural understanding of that is is a being overwhelmed by. It's an involuntary involuntary overwhelm, and yet clearly this is something much deeper and more nuanced and significant is meant here. Surrender is conscious. It's deliberate. So surrender is not I give up. Well, it is in a way because I give up my will, my need to see things my way, you know, when I want, how I want, the way I want it, etc. Me, it's like, so for me, the surrender is I trust you. The, the, one of the things that we said, I can't, he can, so I'll let him. Or I can't, the <laughs> can, so I'll let it. You know, there's different ways of speaking. I know that these days we have to kind of be conscious of that. But so for me, the surrender, because I'm not that kind of person, I'm a cancer. That's my zodiac sign. I got my claws on everything. And, you know, it's been my life that I've wanted things my way. And it has the thing that has changed me most is surrendering to the will of the divine. And now I have no problem. Well, if it's if it if the thing I want comes great, if not, the form will be something else. So I'm much more about. And then because you can't have step three without step 11 and they're related. Mm -hmm. Those two are related, right? So the first one, I offer myself to thee to build with me, to do with me as thou wilt, thy will be done through me. Relieve me of the bondage of self so that I may better do mm -hmm. thy will. Let there be light. That's, I kind of mixed it up a little. But then the next one is, right? Stop through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God. And we have the same Francis of Assisi prayer. So it's all about ego sublimation. So it's like, let me be a conduit. Let me shine on behalf of the divine. Let me be an emissary of thy will. Let me understand rather than be understood. So it again takes this out of that me, me, I, I into the, the greater and it gives us more liberation and freedom. We feel better. I just, listen, I love it because it made me feel better. Made me feel useful, mm -hmm. you know, and it is a selfish program and I get it because it's like, it's kind of weird. There's a, by giving up myself, I get more of me. <laughs> well, you, you can't say that an infant is selfish, you know, no. oh, you selfish baby. Well, let me it doesn't even apply at that stage. So in healing and bringing back lives from this, this chaos and, and disease and darkness and dysfunction and suffering, yes, it has to, but you're not ready to go save the world. You know, you stopped drinking 20 minutes ago, right? <laughs> right. There's, there's a lot of stuff, you know, but uh -huh. at least you're on the road. You're on the path to find out, as Cat Stevens said. You know, we're on the way yeah. to find it out. So, and there's a very important twist here in just the understanding of selfishness, because the way our cultural convention, particularly of our understanding of virtue and service, because our culture assumes that service is self-sacrifice, and yet the wisdom you're pointing to recognizes that service is enlightened self-interest. I have a, have a question. We, we can't yeah. let you get out of here without asking. What do you do as your kind of daily practice. I mean, you, obviously you're, you're uh, a channel, okay? Stuff comes through, you know, and you give, give, and you know, you have really big following and people for obvious reasons. You've got medicine that people need and you're supplying it, but how do you, how do you refill? How do you stay in touch with the source as, as an, int an introvert and as a person that, that is on the path being a teacher and a guide? Okay. So I live in the middle of nowhere. My neighbor, my closest neighbor is a mile and a half down the road. So I'm in nature and I see trees and I go for a walk around my property. I have 25 acres. I go round and round and round and round and round and round. I walk and believe it or not, I use I awakes meditation tracks twice a day. Wow. Like I do. 
I, I have my favorites. I move through them. I do whatever. Yeah. I just like we put Lee Kabusta or something. She just had a new one. That, that was really cool. Busta, yeah. Yeah, Busta, yeah. So there's, yeah, I listen to, and I literally pray on gratitude. I just say, thank you. That's as simple as I can get. I say, thank you. As I walk, I say, thank you to every tree. I go for a walk up the hill. It's super simple and I have to keep it simple and I paint. So painting is meditation for me. And it's not about being good. It's not about being anything. It's about being just like to move, just to move. And I like dancing. I I like dancing around and just very simple things. Honestly, it's nothing that complicated. I don't do TM. I don't do, you know, I meditate on gratitude, on thank you, period. Surrender, you take it. And then I, yeah, I do some sigil work. So yeah, I just do it every day because I have to. And then days that I don't do it, I'm a whack job. I am a so wackadoodle and I'm mad and I'm ornery and I don't know why. And I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like that I do it because I have to. Yeah. yeah. I certainly understand that one. If I don't get my meditation in, Roger is not a, not a happy camper. <laughs> and I want to make sure we don't lose what you said about gratitude, Colette, because it feel it seems like it's such an underestimated practice and my late wife just a few hours before she died a friend asked her what's your what's your spiritual practice and she said i'm practicing gratitude and it's mm-hmm. like wow and it didn't take it only took a, a couple of mornings to realize i had a choice i could i could wake up and allow my mind to go down the road of poor me i've lost my wife she's i'm all alone i don't uh, or I could start counting all my blessings. I have a roof over my head. I have friends. I have resources. I've, it's an l- endless list, as we know, if you start a gratitude practice. And, of course, it didn't, it didn't eradicate the grief, but it sure oh. made it a lot easier. And it was, uh, so I've come to appreciate it as a profound practice and a deep fan of Brother David Stendelrust, whose website gratitude.org is such a wonderful resource for so many people. So I wanted want to get that in, but I also, you know, you two, I, I really feel there's something terribly important here in having both of you say more and to take this opportunity to talk about 12 step because both of you have a, you know, have really worked with this for yourself and for others. You have a, a very deep understanding of it, and it feels like such an underestimated path. So you've mentioned a couple of steps or a few of them. I don't think we've touched on the first two. I'd just love to hear you talk more about this. I have five minutes. I'm going to tell you everything in five minutes. How's that? All right. Okay. Okay. Step one, I'm screwed up. Okay. That's number one. <laughs> I'm screwed. I need to do something about it. All right. I surrender to I'm screwed. Step two, there's something bigger than me. Wow. Step three, that is my partner. I give up. I don't trust. Like I know I can't do this. They can. I'm going to let them. Step four, I have to look at myself. Like, right. Step four is like, whoa, to look at myself without fear. Let's be real. Step five, tell somebody dump it out, like admit it. Then I usually mix the six and seven was what I skipped for most. I right humble humility. What's that? So being ready, I'm not ready. I'm like, I'm going to go from, I'm so back it up. <laughs> I need to get ready. Make help me get ready. Right. Help me get ready. Oh, I need to understand the nature of humility. Okay. Now I'm ready to put a piece of pen, a pen to a piece of paper, make a list of the people I've genuinely harmed, not the drug dealer that, you, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, whatever, you know, like it's like, let's be people hard. Then, right. You have to be willing to make a mess of them. Then go do it. Then actually go do it. 
buckle up, buttercup, get out there, get humble, say it. Then keep taking your inventory because this is a maintenance program now. Then keep connecting to spirit like, hey, hi, it's me. <laughs> like I'm I, left to my own devices. I might be, you know, likely going to be going backwards. Help me out here, you know, and then carry the message that this works, that you are let walking proof that you are not killing yourself, that you are not hurting people that you are conscious aware and that there is a power greater than you and this and would you like to know about that that's basically how it works <laughs> yeah th there's a way out you know there's a way, a way out, out. Mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. i mean i'd love it really honestly a conversation about the 12 steps is a whole hour and john has to talk for half of it and i could talk for the other half right uh, well uh, i would suggest we come back and maybe i'll just I'll cool. play support and the two of you do exactly that because I think it'll be a very, very important gift. Yeah, I just need to say, I'll, I'll just be saying amen. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be the, the... No, you have to talk too. Oh, okay. Hey, Colette, what, what a tremendous joy. The goddess is alive and well. Yes. We were manifesting that and I deeply appreciated it. And it heals my heart. And so many of the things you said about your shame, your introversion, your blah, I mean, it's just like, even being a singer songwriter, I mean, so many parallels in my messed up self and in my stumbling towards God, uh, it's reflected in your wisdom and your story and your, the, I don't know, coming from the deep end of the pool in a way that's so enlightening and so beautiful and, and so hope inspiring. Uh, deeply appreciate it. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, both of you. Yes, thank you so much, Colette. It's really been a, uh, a gift to be able to do this dialogue and explore in the way we have. Thanks so much. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.